Welcome, team, to the Man Talk Show. I am Connor Beaton, and joining me today is Nick Carmody. Now, Nick, I'm going to tell you a little bit about him and then what we talk about in the show, but his life shifted dramatically in 2010 when he experienced two life-changing traumatic brain injuries only eight months apart, on top of ending a 12-year relationship with a narcissist. The changes in brain function, personality, and emotional processing, as well as navigating the divorce and being bled out financially in courts led Nick to rock bottom and near suicide, but also gave him an intense desire to understand and confirm what he was experiencing. And this became his motivation to work in the psychology field. He has since written uh, a number of books. He has a bachelor's of arts in criminal justice from Concordia University, a jurist doctor from the John Mitchell Law School in Chicago, and a master's of science degree in Tiffin University in Ohio. And he has a private practice based in Denver and works with a lot of children from low-income families who have experienced trauma, uh, many who many of them are, are currently in foster care. So Nick has, has, is in the process of writing a book called Putting My Worst Foot Forward. Uh, he writes quite a bit about the dangers of cluster B personality disorders in Amer- American politics. And uh, he wrote a, an article that got a lot of traction, a lot of attention uh, a few years ago called Trickle Down Pathology. So what do we talk about in this episode? Well, Nick shares a little bit about um, his upbringing. Uh, he was sexually abused as a child, and he talks a little bit about that. He talks about the brain injuries uh, and, and navigating some of these hardships, navigating these different forms of physical and sexual trauma. Uh, and then we talk about modern masculinity, the current culture, uh, how men face these types of challenges within their own lives, and what happens when we don't tackle those things. Uh, we also talk about a, a number of other things in terms of uh, how how we as men talk about politics and the the dissolving of modern discourse within our culture and society and how we as men can approach those conversations a little bit more effectively. So I really enjoyed this conversation with Nick, and I hope that you do as well. So without any further delay, please welcome Nick Carmody. Good, Connor. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, of course. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I think there's some some good stuff that we're going to dive into today. I always start with the same question, and I feel like you're going to have some some interesting stuff for this. So I always start with the same question, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. So I've had several, but probably the most relevant to what I do now and to those who are familiar with me, you know, are, know about it. I had a couple of traumatic brain injuries in 2010, and I'll refer to them as TBIs going forward just for brevity's sake, but TBI is traumatic brain injury. And so I had the first one five weeks after my daughter was born. And then I had the second one still dealing with the fogginess and the haziness of the first one. And uh, that contributed to the second one occurring. And up to that point, I I was a non-practicing attorney. And when I had that experience, it kind of set me off into another path to try to understand the changes in brain function and personality, as well as some unique personal experiences with some very difficult personalities in my personal life. in addition to a, a very toxic divorce. And so one of the things that led me to become a lawyer was that I flunked out of school in 1993 after my junior year of college, got into some pretty heavy drug use, drug dealing, got busted making a run down to Texas in 1996. 
And that became motivation to becoming a lawyer. And so when I started finding myself struggling with the brain injuries and the depression and the anxiety and even suicidal ideation that went beyond suicidal ideation, you know, I was trying to figure out how to climb out of that hole. One of the things that I leaned on was my experience with the last time I found myself in a really deep hole. And that was to go back to school. And so this was something I actually wrote on the application when I was applying for a doctorate in psychology. I ended up getting a master's. But at a time when I needed a lawyer, I became one. And at a time when I needed a psychologist, I ended up becoming one. And that's just kind of been my MO for, you know, for my life and what I've dealt with. That, you know, when I need somebody, I become that person. Yeah, good. Well, well said. I feel like that's, uh, I feel like that's applicable for a lot of guys, you know, it's like to become that person that you need. And sometimes it means finding that person first. I know for myself, when I was at rock bottom and, and going through the shitstorm of my life, to put it lightly, you know, I found men who I could learn from and apprentice with who I, you know, who informed who I could become. And yeah, so I, I really appreciate you sharing that. I have a few follow-up questions. When you talk about traumatic brain injury, what are some examples of the causality of that? Is that just like like car accidents or is PTSD classified as a as TBI? Like what are some of the can you just give us a little bit of a scope around TBI? So TBI tends to be more trauma. I mean, it's usually a head injury. It can be a closed or a open wound, you know, as far as the, the, the skull and the scalp. And usually it's, it's some type of blunt force trauma. You'll see, you know, concussion. You'll see like with the NFL, the concussion was a big issue. You're seeing, uh, you know, that, that, came, that really brought TBI and uh, brain injury kind of to the forefront because the NFL is so big. PTSD is more of a, of a disorder. You know, it's more of a condition. I would imagine that, you know, there's probably a lot of guys that come back from the military who also experienced a TBI, you know, whether it was from an IED, you know, blowing up their Humvee or something. And then that experience led to PTSD disorder, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. So they may, you know, they may exist comorbidly, but they're not necessarily the same thing. So what you're saying is that people that have, that have had TBI have generally had some form of like physical incident. Right. Yeah. Okay. And what, what happens after that? Because I think, you know, from guys that I know that have gone through and had sporting injuries, whether it's, you know, downhill skiing or snowboarding or, you know, hockey, stuff like that, football, car accidents, those types of things with traumatic brain injuries, it gets challenging sometimes for us to know how to support those individuals. So what are, what are some of the side effects that people experience after having a traumatic brain injury and how, what does it actually look like to recover from that, to rehabilitate from that? So with the sports, you know, I had, I played 11 years of football up through just D3 college, small college, but you know, no big deal. And I had had concussions and I expected at some point it would probably have some effect. When I had the first traumatic brain injury at 38, I think maybe, maybe is the severity, the combination of the severity of the injury, as well as probably having it at middle age rather than late teens or early twenties seemed to have a much more intense effect on me. Some of the the initial things that I dealt with, I dealt with equilibrium issues. I dealt with brain fog, haziness. I dealt with really bad short-term memory issues. When I was going to law school, I worked on printing presses on the night shift and I would just basically skim cases on the train on my way into school. And because I just kind of had that recall where I could just hear something, kind of process it and hold on to it. But once I had the, the first TBI, I said the words, I don't remember more times in probably the first four or five months than I had said in the previous 10 or 20 years. And that became 
very frustrating. And it's not only frustrating for the person who experiences it, but the people in your life who know you and come to expect you to have certain abilities and then to not have those abilities, it becomes very frustrating for them. So you can imagine a, a spouse or a parent or a child who is used to you remembering everything, having to recall, you know, when, they, when you start to tell them, you know, I don't remember, I can't remember, that becomes frustrating with them. And that creates a little bit of tension in the relationship. One of the things, another thing that I experienced was depression. I experienced pretty intense anxiety. There's changes in personality, changes in brain functioning, you know, and a lot of this is very tough for guys to deal with because it is, you know, in many cases, it's just an invisible injury. Even though there may have been an initial injury, the physical injury heals much faster than the actual, the brain injury itself. And because the brain is such a complex organ and because, you know, different injuries can occur in different areas of the brain, there may be common symptoms that people experience, but every brain injury is pretty much, you know, its own unique injury. You know, it's, it's very, it's very specific to that person. So although there may be some, some common experiences, every person's injury is a little bit different. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's quite a lot to, to deal with and to navigate in terms of having that form of brain injury. I'm, I'm curious. Well, let me, let me just pause on this because I don't want to spend necessarily too, too much time on traumatic brain injuries because I want to do, I want to talk about a few other things. I would love for you to just tell the audience a little bit about what it is that you do today. So you, you had a law degree, you went back, got your master's science and psychology what is it that you do today? What do you sort of specialize in and just sort of unpacking that for the listener? So initially when I went back, my, you know, my goal was to work with other TBI survivors. They really big in exercise. It's the, the most effective form of mitigating the TBI symptoms. And so, you know, one of the ways that I realized that I was pulling myself out of that funk was going to the gym every day and just mm -hmm. really intense exercise. And as I started to feel a little bit better, what I realized was that this was probably generalizable, that, you know, this was probably a way to work this into therapy with, you know, ex-military, law enforcement, athletes, whatever it may be. And I started to kind of envision, you know, envision having a therapy practice where I would have, you know, maybe a small home gym or something like that and, and work that into the, the sessions. And so that started to become motivating. I went back and got the master's and, you know, started working with private clients. And now I don't ha necessarily have that set up, but I worked with a couple of nonprofits with severely traumatized kids. Most of them are in foster care. And so that tends to be one area of my practice. And then I also have a private practice. It tends to be mostly adults and some teenagers, but in all of these cases, I incorporate physical activity. And so, you know, whether we're walking around a lake up here in, in the foothills of Colorado, whether we're mountain biking, whether we're shooting baskets, you know, whether we're in the, the gym, I'm always incorporating some type of movement because I think it's, it's difficult to be emotionally and psychologically healthy without being physically healthy. In 2013, there were 270 million prescriptions written for antidepressants. You know, we have a country of 330 million people or whatever it was, and that's not a one-for-one, -one, you know, write off some people had more than one prescription. But as you look at, you know, as, as technology and even apathy has created more of a sedentary lifestyle, you know, the, the, the incidence of depression and anxiety have gone up in correlation with obesity and type 2 diabetes. And so, you know, one of the ways that I try to, you know, explain this to people is that, you know, the evolutionary process occurs very slowly. And so you can't expect what it took us thousands of generations to evolve into is going to devolve over one or two or three generations, depending on, you know, what part of the world you live into and what your occupation is. And so, you know, we're basically asking our bodies to devolve, you know, in a, in a, a blink of an eye, what it took, you know, 
however many thousands of generations to evolve into. And, and our bodies are basically rejecting the modern lifestyle the way the body rejects an organ transplant. Mm. And so it's no coincidence that we're dealing with these high levels of mood disorders and depression and all that stuff. So I try to work all that stuff in there. You know, and the other part of that too is whether it's, you know, a seven-year-old boy, you know, or a guy in his fifties, you know, guys don't really want to sit in an office staring at each other talking about feelings. And so, you know, incorporating the, the exercise and the movement helps because you're focused on the pace of your breathing, you're focused on the rhythm of your heartbeat, where you're going to plant your next step kind of look over at each other and make purposeful eye contact, but you're still kind of, it's almost a backdoor, indirect way to talk about very emotional, delicate, vulnerable topics. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's wonderful. I mean, it's, it's funny. Like we start off the Man Talks Alliance, which is it's online group that we have with hundreds of guys from around the world. And every single call that we start off, we start off with the breath work, you know, getting out of the head and getting into the body, right? Just like these simple things to get back into the body because we do lead very domesticated lives, you know? You know, the other thing too that I, you know, I try for guys is that you know, there's still a certain stigma for mental, mental health or mm -hmm. therapy. And so, you know, sometimes, especially with teenagers, you know, their mom or you know, parents want, you know, they want them to grow, but they don't really want to grow. And so one of the ways that I tell them is, well, there's nothing wrong with me. Why should I go to therapy? Well, that's like saying the only people who go to gym are overweight or out of shape, right? right. And there's a lot of people who go to gym. I'm one of them. You're one of them. You know, who they go there not because they're out of shape, but because they want to they want to stay healthy. They want to stay in shape. And so think about therapy in that context. You're not going to therapy because you're, you know, there's something wrong with you or you're, or you're mentally or emotionally or psychologically out of shape. You're going there to stay in a you know, mental or psychological shape, you know, and that kind of reduces the stigma a little bit because it's like, well, that's what you're basically telling me that I know I'm fat. That's why I'm in a gym because I'm fat. <laughs> and then they look at that and it's almost like, you know, they feel like they're insulting you and then, you know, kind of. You kind of ease your way back into that, right. you know, that awareness of it, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think, I do think that we need sometimes different modalities or different frameworks to get us into certain, you know, certain areas to overcome stigmas, to overcome some of the stereotypes around things like therapy. You know, it's like, I mean, our slogan, even with man, man talks, right? Our slogan is, it's not therapy, it's training, right? Mm -hmm. So we, I take a very training based approach because I found that's what's been working for me. You know, is I'm not a I'm not a trained psychologist. I'm not a you know licensed psychologist, and it's not that those things don't work. It's just that I've found a bit of a different approach to be efficient and beneficial for me, and and I think that that functions for a lot of guys. I think that guys are, I mean, take setting boundaries within a relationship or communication within a relationship. It's like, man, that's a skill. You know, that's a skill that you may not have developed as a kid growing up, or you may have been immersed in an environment where your parents lacked the skill of setting boundaries or apologizing or having healthy communication. And so you've just never been immersed in an environment where that skill set has been taught to you. And so learning and developing some of these skills is an incredibly potent thing for us as men to tackle, to accomplish. So anyway, that was just a, a sidebar. Yeah. And, I, and one of the things that I was reading on, you know, your, uh, your bio too, is that, uh, you know, by when, when they know that you've been through a lot of shit, right? They kind of respect that a little bit. And that's, you know, one thing with, you know, with my experiences, you know, I dealt with some pretty severe sexual abuse when I was five, mm. you know, I dealt with the brain injuries, I dealt with the drug stuff, functionality, fail, you know, failed a lot. When, you know, when they know that you've been through a lot of things, they're more receptive to what you have to say because it becomes, in addition to being a therapist, you're also a peer, you're also a mentor. And it's not something, you know, where somebody's telling them, this is what you should do. You're telling them, hey, this is how I did it. Mm -hmm. right? You can take it or you can leave it, but I'm telling you not just what you should do. I'm telling you how I did it and how it works for me. 
And I can, you know, I can, I can take you there if you want to get there. You know, that's up to you. You have to make that choice. But I, I know this path works. It may not work for everybody, but it's worked for me. And, and it's worked for a lot of people that I worked with. You know, and the other thing about, you know, especially with the exercise, one of, you know, I try to help guys with the exercise, try to redefine their masculine identity. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the guys, you know, whether it's adults or kids that I worked with, some of them also have been, you know, dealt with sexual abuse and stuff. And, you know, we create a lot of false narratives in our head about ourselves. You know, one of the things that I try to teach, utilize this with myself, is that, you know, you're always going to have doubters. You're always going to have people who tell you that you're not good enough or you can't do something. And a lot of times you're one of those people. It's the voices in your head, right? And so one of the things that, that I will tell them is don't let them be right, right? Whoever they are, right? They may be you, but whoever they are, don't let them be right. They might be right tomorrow, but today's not that day. I'm not going to let them be right today. I'm not going to skip the workout. I'm not going to, you know, fall off the wagon if I'm, you know, avoiding alcohol or eating crap foods or what, whatever it may be. And so it's, it's trying to create, you know, the work ethic, the accountability, the dedication, because once you start to get into a routine with those things, it basically shoots those false narratives to hell, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I know when I was dealing with you know, the brain injury shit, I, you know, I heard I was a lazy piece of shit, that I was weak, mentally weak, I was a pussy, I didn't want to work. You know, all, all these things because I wasn't the guy that I had been previously up to that point. And, you know, we tend to be, what have you done for me lately, society, as well as with, you know, the sexual abuse stuff when I was very young, was you start to think that, you know, you're a pussy, you didn't fight enough, you know, you allowed it to happen, or you start to become super, you know, hypersensitive of, especially coming of age as teenagers, of anything that's sexually themed because it's, you know, it's a trigger. And so, you know, when I try to, you know, remind one guy specifically who went through some sexual uh, abuse stuff, he's an older teenager now, but, you know, when I, when I would get him and I would see this really timid body language and stuff, and I'm like, you know, those things that you think about yourself, that's bullshit, man. That's a false narrative because the guy that you think you are wouldn't be in here busting his ass every day with me like this because we, you know, pussies, they don't do what you do every day. So therefore it has to be a false narrative. Mm. And, you know, the more you get into that routine, the more that narrative disappears. Because yeah. that guy that you keep telling yourself that you are doesn't exist right here doing mm-hmm. this. Yeah, man. I mean, I think there's a bunch of like different threads that I could pull in on there. You know, one is the sexual abuse because I feel like, you know, I've been writing about this in in the the book that I'm publishing next year lately about how I'm always surprised at how many men have experienced some form of abuse or trauma that they've never dealt with. You know, like I used to go around North America and, and do these um, do these live events. And at some point in the in the event or the workshop, I would I would bring up, you know, trauma or adverse adverse events. And it was always surprising to see how many men had experienced that and how many men had never really talked about it or never really dealt with it. And it's almost like we as men have this framework, this belief system that if we can just ignore it hard enough that it won't affect us. You know, like if I could just pretend like that shit didn't happen, then maybe it won't affect me. Almost like avoidance is a tool for negating, uh, negating it affecting us in any capacity or our relationships or our sex life or our business or whatever it is. The second thing that I heard that I really want to talk about, actually, because I feel like this is a good thread to pull on, is the role of mentorship within masculine culture and how that position or that archetype of mentorship and fatherhood has been eroded, in my opinion, within our culture. And I think that you have a lot of men, I'm, I'm going to, I want to get your take on this in a second, but I think you have a lot of men that are sometimes very polarizing within our culture, filling in 
this role of a mentor or a father figure to men who are looking for guidance, you know, who have who have really lacked that guidance, who have really lacked any type of compassion or mentorship or apprenticeship within their life. And so they sort of latch on to someone who is kind of speaking to them in a way, but may not be the best thing for them. So I'm curious from your perspective to just sort of take what I've said and and run with it. Because I think the idea of, of mentorship as we enter into these higher polarized times within our culture seem to be really affecting the male population. So what are your what are your thoughts on that? What do you take from them? So one of the first things that comes to mind that I have a couple of clients, late teens, early 20s, who have been really affected by not having their dad in their lives. And one of and that was, you know, basically my experience too. And and one of the things that I tell them is that, you know, it's better, and this kind of leads into your point more generally, is that, you know, it's better to have no male example than to have a poor example, right? Mm. If you had a, da- a dad who was just a shit show, you know, you saw him beat your mom or he was, you know, demeaning to you or invalidating to you, whatever it may be, it's hard to unlearn those lessons, you know, basically, you know, to have to come back up to sea level to then learn the positive things as, as opposed to just having, you know, to learn the positive things. And so, you know, I think in society, you know, unfortunately, those who, who speak or yell the loudest tend to, by default, assume leadership positions because they just kind of suck the oxygen out of the room. Hmm. And those aren't necessarily the people we want to follow or the people that you want to emulate. But, you know, leader or the, you know, the lead by example guy, sometimes it's hard to, uh, you know, find your spot with certain people because inflammatory rhetoric can be empowering. You go to, you know, certain rallies or certain, you know, certain places when they start getting on a roll and it starts to be aggressive or demeaning or inhumane, I mean, that, that momentum starts, you know, it starts to roll downhill. And unfortunately, I think that and you find this with like white supremacist groups and stuff like that is that that becomes, you know, very empowering for them to be around people who create a sense of community mm-hmm. and a sense of purpose and do so by contrasting that commonality, you know, demographic or, or race or whatever it may be against another, another other group. You know, for guys who are young and isolated and trying to figure out who they are or, or, you know, how to define themselves, that's really alluring. And it's especially alluring when somebody speaks loudly, you know, and quickly and, and aggressively because they seem like they know what they're talking about or they feel like they're, you know, because of the aggressiveness of their tone, their voice, that they are powerful and can, you know, kind of protect you. Yeah, there's a there's a kind of, I don't know if it's confidence or assuredness that seems to that we as human beings seem to be wired to pay more closely attention to when someone is that aggressive, that assertive in their tone, you know, because it's almost like, oh, they they sound so sure of themselves. And if you have grown up, I think, in an environment where you are taught the pulls, right, you are either taught you are you are either taught that there was an absence of that entirely, and so you've never developed that assertiveness or directiveness or unapologeticness in yourself. There's going to be a part of you that's going to long for that, you know, and you're gonna you're gonna seek that out in the world. And on the other side, you may have been indoctrinated into the ideology that that is the way to go, and and that you know how you should operate as a man in the world is always this sort of hyper aggressive orientation. And I mean, it's been interesting. You and I were talking about this right before we got on the show. You know, I've really grappled with this for like the last couple of years, having somewhat of a platform when it comes to talking about these polarized topics, right? Whether it's politics, whether it's 
the pandemic or you know whatever might be the hot polarized topic of of the day or the month and i've really tried to stay out of that space as much as possible and it's been interesting to see how much flack i get and people are always asking like how come you don't talk about politics how come you don't you know talk about trump or biden or the pandemic or the vaccines or the mandates and you know i think i've tried to just be like this haven of non-polarized discourse where people can still come and, you know, men can still come and better themselves, but it's not on the presupposition that you need to get caught in this like left or right, up or down, you know, moral or immoral conversation. Because I think that, I don't know, it almost, it almost feels like our society is in a, in a form, in a way, almost like warring for male consciousness, you know, not entirely, but I do feel like there's sort of like this war for male consciousness to enlist guys into different camps per se, because we tend to fight for things, you know, we tend to be loud. How have you handled that? And what do you see men struggling with battling with in these current times that are so hyper polarized and politicized? Well, I think uh, to go back right when you started, uh, one of the things that came into mind is certainty that comes, the phrase that I use in a lot, and, and we haven't covered this yet, but I, I write a lot about political psychology. That was mm-hmm. one of the things I kind of stumbled into when I w- was in grad school was because I had experience with personality disorders, I saw it in Trump and, and I was able to really extrapolate it out and predict a lot of the things that were happening. And so one of the ways that I describe society in general, but specific personalities is I use a term called binary orientation. Right. It tends to be personalities that see things every, you know, in either or black or white concrete ways. And those type of people tend to be very certain. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's either or it's either good or bad. It's black or white. There's no, you know, a, you know, equivocation, no ambiguity, yeah, ambiguity, no equivocation. And so there's a certain power to, you know, as soon as they're faced their problem, you know, they're they're not what's the word I'm looking for. They're, you know, they're, they're very incisive. Right. They're not wavering as opposed to somebody who may have a personality who's very, the type of mind that can really absorb abstraction mm. or you know, kind of shades of gray. And so if you got a guy over here who's yelling about, this is right, this is wrong, or you got over here going, well, there's four or five possibilities here. Let's talk these through. Who seems to be more powerful? Who seems to be somebody who, who knows what they're talking about? And, and who seems to be the better leader, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, especially when you get in this, you know, with, with you being from Canada, you know, one of the things I've written about is that, you know, in a two-party system, like in the U.S., strength comes from the ability to oppose your will on the opposing party, mm-hmm. right? It's in a binary system. Well, if you have three or four or five parties or, or just, you know, factions, strength comes from the ability to create consensus, right? And to kind of, kind of bring people into your side of thinking. And that's two completely antithetical perceptions of strength. And to kind of go on to your other point, you know, one of the things that we struggle with now is that there's almost this expectation <laughs> If, if not a perceived, you know, obligation, pick a tribe, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, there's times where, you know, where I write something and, you know, I've been very critical of the right, very critical of Trump, you know, because that's where I, you know, I see the, the biggest cause of psychological stress in our country right now is our politics. And so, you know, that's what I gravitate to as a psychologist is, you know, is to try to explain this and figure it out. And, you know, I see the right as being the major cause of this right now. But there are times when something will come up or, or Biden will do something and, I, and I'll be critical of Biden or I'll be like, hey, you know, if Trump was leading this withdrawal from Afghanistan, you know, everybody who's defending Biden right now, you would have been, you know, you've just been, been you know, 
worry any Trump for, you know, for how bad it was. Right. Then it's like, you know, people who have done nothing but praise me. Right. Suddenly turn on me, even to the point, you know, at least one person was telling me I was a shitty therapist. I didn't know what the hell I was doing because I made, you know, one, you know, one criticism of the withdrawal or just, you know, how it was being handled or, you know, the press conference or something like that. Or if you're not, you know, you're a little bit too accused of the both sides uh-huh. right? Or you're choosing an offense that or something like that. And, it, you know, it makes it, it makes it very difficult for people who see things in a you know, relatively, we all have our biases, but try to see things in a relatively objective way. Because as you said, you know, you can catch some shit from the left, you catch some shit from the right. And it's, you know, at that point, you got to kind of sit back and be like, well, maybe I'm doing something right. If I'm pissing both people, you know, both sides <laughs> off, because it might be occupying the rational, you know, gray area there. Yeah, it does. It does seem like, and I'm curious, again, to get your thoughts on this from a, a political psychology perspective, but also from a masculinity perspective, it, it almost seems as though the age of nuance is dead. You know, that like nuance within our discourse, within our politics, seems to be going by the wayside. And you even look at democratic countries that, you know, that for a long time have been quite democratic in in nature. A lot of people are talking about these countries moving more towards authoritarianism, you know, and even within the United States, you have I think the the poll the other day that I saw was I think it was 42 or 44 percent, 42 or 46. I can't remember somewhere in there of the country that that did this poll said that they think that the U.S. is close to a second second civil war. Right. So you have this kind of hyperpolarization, lack of nuance. How do you feel that we as men play into that? Like, is that just a psychological thing? Is that like a masculine thing? Because I know within myself, I can feel this part that very much wants to move towards that orientation of saying this is right and that's wrong. And this is this is the direction that we should go. And this is not the direction that we should go. But in this time where everybody has that level of polarized opinion, it's almost like, well, what the hell is that going to do? So I feel like I just asked you six questions. So I'll just let you choose which one you want to take. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, for a long time, I think one of the, whether it was intentional or not, one of the objectives has been to masculinize conservative politics, right? Either mm. through the Second Amendment with germs. I mean, think about the term that they would attach to not just women, but due to who lean left. Oh, well, you're a bleeding heart liberal, right? It, you know, it's an attempt to try to pussify, you know, anybody who doesn't see things you know, in a, you know, you said you're, yeah, you're, you're less, sense. you're less, less of a man. If you're a liberal, yeah. You know, you're a pussy. You're not a tough yeah. guy, you know, you're soft, you know, and then there becomes almost like this, you know, I, I remember a specific instance and I wrote about this when I was in grad school. I remember that yeah, was 2008. It was the lead up to Obama. And I, there was a guy in the gym, big dude, Texas dude, big pickup truck and, you know, Texas accent. And he was kind of the alpha of this group of five or six guys in the gym. And they, you know, they weren't like young guys, they were, you know, forties, maybe even reaching into their fifties. And, you know, you can kind of watch the more timid guys who would say, you know, certain mildly curious if, you know, if not supportive of things of Obama, and you would just see this, you know, the alpha just like fucking come down on them. And there was almost like this, this shame, you know, this incentivized through shame to man up because pussies don't vote, you know, Republican, right? Mm-hmm. And men don't vote Democrat, that type of thing. And so we've kind of seen, you know, and unfortunately it is kind of metastasized from not just, the, you know, the masculinization of conservative politics, but kind of the emasculinization of empathy and, and tolerance and, you know, compassion. 
And well, so I, I think if I could just jump in there, I mean, what's interesting is that almost you almost have the antithesis of that happening on the other side of the political spectrum, right? Where you have the demasculization and in some in some areas like villainization of masculinity, right, as being the problem, right? So if you are a cisgendered white male, it's like you might as well be Satan in some people's cir circles, right? And so there's there's almost an equivalency of a almost like a religious fervor against men, against masculinity on the far left, you know? And so it's kind of interesting because it almost looks like it's been genderized on one side and then this sort of hyper degenderizing. I don't know if that's even a real word, but I say it anyway, you know, trying to sort of like strip masculinity and and sort of saying that it's the problem. I think that that behavior in some ways solidifies the right. You know, I think that that type of behavior of villainizing masculinity, of saying that men are the problem, of saying that, you know, men aren't needed, et cetera, whatever the, whatever the rhetoric is, I think that that almost cements the other side to say like, look, they're trying to take down men or like, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. And so what are your, what are your thoughts on, on that, on the sort of like far left, you know, that view of almost like eradicating a man's place or, or masculinity altogether and sort of seeing it as villainizing it. Yeah. It kind of goes back to that binary orientation, right? There's no middle ground. There's no gray area, right? One side is, you know, similar to like racism. One side sees no racism, says there's no racism anywhere. The other side is saying that everything's about racism, right? All racism. Yeah. You know, with the masculinity thing, you know, it's, there's no middle ground and you have, there's no nuance and you don't have people on the left saying, yeah, of course there's problems with masculinity. Of course, you know, there's misogyny. Of course there's, you know, there's issues with this stuff, but it's not everybody. You know, if you don't have people saying that, then what are you doing? You essentially have the left who's just pushing dudes who might otherwise be sympathetic, you know, to the cause or, or at least moderate on some of these issues. You're pushing them into welcome arms on the right who are saying, yeah, come over here, man. You know, just kind of like what we talked about earlier with the certainty and the loud, you know, the mentorship where, you know, there's a certain empowerment or strength to try to get behind, you know, those people who are saying, yeah, man, come over here. You know, we'll welcome every single one of you dudes that that they're, you know, criticizing or or disparaging. And, uh, you know, some of the, you know, I just wrote something the other day on Josh Hawley and the, uh, the video games and the porn in that, you know, and one of the things that I wrote in there is that, you know, it's, it's wrong to sit here and tell, you know, little white boys have them carry the burden of previous generations or, or, or you know, previous guys who, who did egregious or inappropriate things. Just like it's, you know, it's wrong to tell, you know, a white kid that he, you know, that he's inherently white and he's got to carry this burden or he's inherently racist because he's got to carry this burden because of previous generations. It's, you know, it's just this, this spring loaded demonization and, and victimhood mm. that, you know, that we're kind of, you know, injecting into kids at a very early age right now. And of course, you know, of course that's going to push them into the arms of demagogues who are, you know, spouting about race and masculinity and, and all that other stuff. Yeah. I think that there are some very real challenges. You know, I do think that there are some very real challenges that young men, uh, you know, are are facing in today's culture. Like I just posted about this the other day, but there's some research that just came out and it was something like 27% of men between the age of 18 and 30 haven't had a sexual partner. You know, in that in that 27%, it's the highest that it's ever been since they started doing this recording. Now it is up for women, but it's like 17% for women. And then you look at data from like Tinder and all these dating apps. And what you start to see is that 
women's selection preferences are much more specific than men. And so women are sort of using these dating apps to select a very small percentage of men and, you know, whatever it is, two, 5% of men that are on these dating profiles. And the rest of these guys are, are not getting any traction, you know, so they're on there for months at a time and they're swiping. Yes, 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 yes. And they're trying to get dates and, it, and it's just not working. And so, yeah, I think there are some very interesting challenges that young men are facing today, right? College rates are dropping. So less men are going to college than ever before. So, I mean, you have this very interesting intersection of less men going to college and graduating from college, less men in the dating population, less men able to, you know, get some form of a relationship sexually or otherwise. And it's like, what are all these guys doing? You know, it's like, where are they going? It's like, well, no wonder they're far more susceptible to radicalization on either side because there's not a lot of function for them within culture, within society, within relationships. And so I was, I was hoping that maybe you could just speak on that intersectionality of how it might be easier now to radicalize a young man than it, than it has been in the past. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting that, you know, you say that about college and, you know, I remember just from my own personal experience, when I flunked out of college, you know, I kind of had a bad attitude or resentment towards not just college, but towards people who, who went and who had completed college. And, you know, part of it was just my insecurity and, you know, I just had a bad attitude about it. I, you know, I failed and I was going to basically kind of bring them down to my level, you mm -hmm. know, at least mentally, you know? And so when you think about what we're facing now as a society with kind of the anti-science, the anti-intellectualism, the anti-academia, the anti-expertise, well, it's much easier to, you know, spread that type of narrative when a smaller and smaller percentage of guys are actually doing that process and can appreciate the hard work that it takes to complete that and will defend that process because they've done it themselves. Mm -hmm. Similarly with, you know, with women, you know, when guys are on a dating site for, you know, eight, 10, 12 months and they're not getting, you know, any attention, well, it makes it much easier to start to, you know, indoctrinate them with misogynistic and, you know, anti-women rhetoric, which can, which will be, you know, kind of couched in an anti-left or kind of a political context, which makes it easier to kind of bring them into, you know, to the, to the right-wing politics. And, you know, of course they're going to be resentful of, you know, what the, you know, what the hell, man, I can't even, I right. can't, you know, you know, she wouldn't even respond to an email on match.com or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Well, I think, it, I think it's almost, it does make it easier in some ways because they've like the, almost the, the liberal promise in some ways to young men is that if you are more vulnerable, more feminine, more open, more transparent in these ways that you will be liked more by women. Right. And so, so guys go down this path, right? They're like, I'm working hard. I'm going to college. I'm a nice guy. You know, I'm, I'm messaging women on, I'm not sending them dick pics, you know, like I'm, I'm doing this stuff that I've been told to do, but the results that it's yielding are, are pretty shitty, right? It's pretty terrible. And so well, it's, kind of, it's kind of that paradox where, you know, Hey, you should be vulnerable. You know, you should be a little bit, you know, you know, emotionally available, but when you do, you're not, you're not, I'm not attracted to you because you're not masculine enough. And it right. kind of puts them in kind of a no man's land where, you know, they're not, maybe they're not accepted enough by their dudes who expect them to be more masculine in that group. And they're also not accepted by the women because, you know, they're not masculine enough from a physical attraction standpoint. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting conundrum. So, but I do want to come back to this 
how do you see the challenges that young men or just men in general are facing today playing into this political polarization that we seem to be living through? Because I, I just kind of want to try and connect the dots between those two those two spaces. I feel like I feel like we're talking about it, but I kind of want to get a little bit more of your perspective of what's the yeah, like when you when you think about political psychology and the some of the resources or tactics that they use to coerce or manipulate people or indoctrinate people into certain ideologies and and belief systems, where do men and where does masculinity fit into that and how else do you see men maybe being manipulated? Because my intention with this conversation is to try and bring some light into the minds of men that are listening to this to have a bit of awareness of like, oh, that's what's going on when I see that news article or when I read that political piece or whatever the case may be. Well, I think one of the the main tactics is the you know use of, of victimization, right? Is to try to create a sense of victimhood because when you're a victim, it's somebody else's fault. And I think one of the ways to, you know, we saw that with Josh Hawley where he was, you know, he basically said that, guys are spending too much time watching porn and playing video games. And it's because they've been told that their, their masculinity is the problem. And, you know, it's basically, you know, indoctrinating a sense of learned helplessness. Like, you know, it's basically like, you know what, man, it's not your fault, man. They, you know, they've been talking shit about you for a long time and you try to be a dude and they criticize you. And man, you know, no wonder you just sit down in the basement and watch porn, you know, play video games for dozens of hours a week. But, you know, it's not your fault. And, and what it really is, and I've written about this for decades, you know, we've talked in a different context with race, the right, you know, love to talk about, you know, both personal responsibility and the uh, soft bigotry of low expectations. And so, you know, in this case, you know, this is basically what they're, you know, when they're, when they're telling you you're a victim and it's not your fault and, you know, it, it basically enabling you from taking personal responsibility and taking charge of your life and, and doing the things that we've talked about with exercise and other things, and maybe it is going to school or, you know, whatever it may be. And when you hear somebody telling you that your situation isn't your fault or that it's somebody else's fault, you know, that should be a red flag that you're being manipulated, that you're being exploited. Two things can be true, at, you know, at the same time. There can be circumstances out of your control that puts you in a hole. And sometimes, you know, you got to learn how to put the shovel down and quit digging deeper. And, and there are also, you know, cases, and, and I was one of them, that sometimes I found myself so exhilarated by the fight of climbing out of a hole that I, I felt like I was throwing myself down into them because I love the, the me against the world, back against the wall, let's do this, that type of mentality. And so you have to be also conscious of, you know, your own self-sabotaging behaviors, you know, or thought processes. But when you find yourself in a situation where, you know, whether it's a white supremacist group or even just, you know, the more, more nuanced, you know, political uh, propaganda where somebody's telling you that, you know, it's not your fault that you're doing something that isn't value added to your life. One, you should both be checking them and then checking yourself. Yeah, I think that's that's some pretty solid advice. And I think we're going to have to pause there because I think we're out of time for today and I don't want to hold you too long. But I've I've appreciated this conversation. I feel like there's definitely more, much more to get into and into some of the nuance. So we'll have to have you back on to dig deeper into this. I'm sure that people will have questions. So if people want to learn a little bit more about you, read your work, where can they find you? Where should they scout you out? So I'm at Twitter at Nick underscore Carmody, C-A-R-M-O-D-Y. And I also have a, I've probably written well over 200 threads, but I have a Patreon page. I don't have a paywall because I don't, I think the information is too important to keep people from learning about it. 
over a couple dollar ask on a paywall. So I, I don't charge anything for the Patreon and I try to rewrite as many threads as I can in article form. A lot of times the articles are expand upon or combine previous threads. That's at uh, patreon.com backslash Nick Carmody. Awesome. Awesome. We'll have links for those in the show notes. And I would love to hear your thoughts. So if you enjoyed this episode, as always, man it forward and share it with somebody that you know will enjoy the episode. But feel free to DM me at Man Talks on Instagram. I try and read all or as many of those as possible as I can every week and every day. So feel free to hit me up and let me know what you thought about this episode, what questions you would have, and what topics you would like for me to explore in more depth. And until next week, as always, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Thank you.